How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. When we think about technology and education, we often think about the ways in which we learn through technology, but we may not see how technologies shape education itself. I'm Jeffrey Rockwell, director of the Cool Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Alberta. From the early days of PowerPoint to the use of artificial intelligence, digital technologies are impacting how education is delivered and institutions are shaped. Dr. Kathy Adams has been working at the intersection of education and technology, investigating how digital technologies shape knowledge practices, assessing the technologies used in classrooms and its impact on students and teachers. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, with Dr. Kathy Adams. Dr. Adams, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Well, let's start out with some family history because you have a really interesting personal connection to the U of A and in particular to the computer science department. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so my father, Bill Adams, was one of the founding members of the U of A's Department of Computing Science way back in 1964. And later, when I attended the university, I took a course from my father and ultimately switched my major to computing science. And we actually have three generations of computing scientists in my family. My youngest son also attended the U of A and graduated with a computing science degree. And I guess I can also mention that my father was really interested in how to teach computing science. And as a result, as a young girl, he provided me with the building blocks for what is now known as computational thinking. That's what we call it now. He did this through challenging me with games like Towers of Hanoi, which is a, a set of rings that you have to, it's an ancient game. But he would ask me once I had solved it to describe how I did that in clear terms. And then he encouraged me to find generalized patterns. Then years later, when I was at, at the university, I learned that the solution pattern for Towers of Hanoi, for example, was called recursion, which could then be translated into code. Now, given how fundamental computing is to our lives now, I also began to realize how crucial this kind of computing literacy would be in the future. And it became a bit of a life mission for me to make sure that all children would have these basic understandings that I was the beneficiary of early on, in the same way that we teach mathematical thinking, for example. Interesting. I, a couple things strike me. A, I think it'd be super tough to take a course from your dad. Probably graded you harder, I'm imagining. Um, and B, I'm sure we could go off on a tangent about Towers of Hanoi. That sounds super interesting too. But I'm going to stick with uh, this theme of growing up at the U of A. Um, and now that you're a professor here, uh, we're going to talk more about your research. But I thought just to start things out, if you can kind of give us just this quick snapshot of what types of courses you teach and what is your primary research about? I'm a professor in the Department of Secondary Education. So I took after my father's love of teaching 
um, but also have, of course, this interest in computing science. I currently teach uh, the Introduction to Educational Technology in our undergraduate teacher education program and a few other courses in our graduate programs, um, including philosophy of teaching for our Masters of Health Sciences education. Um, I do a doctoral seminar in something called phenomenological research. And perhaps my favorite graduate course called Pedagogy of Technology, and the subtitle for that is Teachers and Students as Cyborgs. Yeah, so that's what I teach um, in terms of my research. Um, primarily, I investigate teachers and students' experiences of using digital technologies in classrooms, but also in their everyday lives. And here I'm particularly interested in the kinds of ethical issues that crop up for teachers as this digital ecosystem that is the classroom today becomes more and more complex, distributed, and these days, smarter. Very interesting. And I'm particularly intrigued by the cyborg uh, comment. And that's a great segue into some of the things we're going to talk about. We are going to work our way up to artificial intelligence. But I want to start out with something that is so universal in the classroom that people might not even think of it as a technology anymore. And that's the PowerPoint presentation. And it's a mainstay in education. But it wasn't always this way. And you did your PhD about this. Can you share what you learned about this intersection of PowerPoint and education? And why did you want to examine this for your PhD research? You're absolutely right. PowerPoint is now ubiquitous in education. And when it first arrived on the scene, we may be surprised to learn that it caused a big stir. Um, you'd have to go all the way back then. But like all such technologies, they quickly become integrated into our practice if they're successful and then taken for granted. And then we don't tend to think about them anymore. We don't tend to think about them even as technologies. And this is why I wanted to study PowerPoint. Love it or hate it, it is part of our the educational scene now. And my question was this, how has this widespread adoption of PowerPoint changed how teachers teach and how learners learn? And while it was tempting to chase after something new and shiny. There's a lot that can be gleaned from understanding what happens when a technology is fully integrated into um, the educational system and to push away some of the glowing rhetoric, but also um, uh, not paying too much attention to the naysayers because now we know what it looks like in the classroom. I barely remember the days before PowerPoint. I, I do remember teachers coming in with overhead projectors and that sort of thing. But it, it seems right. like such a long time ago. Um, now, in one of your papers, you talk about how PowerPoint invites and seduces educators to reshape knowledge in particular ways. What exactly does that process look like? And why has it been so appealing? What's been the implications of our mass adoption of PowerPoint? So I'm going to begin by talking about technology more generally. And when we approach any new technology, we tend to approach it in the way that it suggests to us. So a hammer, for example, 
we could say that it invites us to pick it up by its handle and of course and begin to hammer with it as we can see with any young child right of course a hammer is a very simple technology powerpoint or any software that we interact with on a device first of all presumes a whole digital environment or infrastructure with menus there's the screen there's the keyboard the whole operating system that i already know how to use but I'm also approaching it with a particular purpose. So as an educator, PowerPoint provides an environment that allows me to easily organize a teaching presentation as a series of slides, often with bullets. And we can even say that PowerPoint convenes this pre-programmed conversation that I take up with it as a teacher, which er urges me to organize and present my knowledge as a series of slides. And, you know, the first suggestion is to um, form that as bullets, right? That's one of the templates, and we can call this a, a default suggestion. And, of course, I can, I can deviate from this default suggestion by making other slide choices, etc. In the case of PowerPoint, these defaults provide a suggested framework. For example, as a series of bulleted slides for expressing my knowledge for presentation purposes. And PowerPoint in this way allows me to make an easy habit of framing my knowledge in this way. And over time, as I use this slide software in my teaching, giving a lecture, it's become the two of them have become almost synonymous. There is this expectation from students that PowerPoints are provided now. And we start to think in terms of giving a lecture using slides, right? It becomes a habit of mind. So every technology we use, especially what I'm going to call digital mind tools, function like this. As we become accustomed to using them, they scaffold certain ways of thinking, grasping, and holding our knowledge. But this powerful way of thinking also always comes at a price. So let's, let's talk about that price a little bit, because I, I think you're painting this picture of a culture of PowerPoint. So there's this expectation now, um, both from the side of the educator, but also the side of the student, that we're going to have a PowerPoint presentation and things will be structured a certain way. Um, but there's this idea that, you know, technology is not neutral. It's kind of shaping the, the context. Can you kind of talk a bit more about the price? Like, what is the cost of that? What, what are we giving up to enable that? Right. So the first thing we can say about a technology, any technology, is it is a kind of amplifier. So it amplifies um, either our ability to do something or perceive something or think something. And we need to consider technologies within this particular amplification, but also reduction framework. So when um, I take up a technology, the only reason I take it up is because it gives me a certain advantage. It allows me to do something that I couldn't do without it. But we also need to understand this dynamic that um, as soon as we do that, some other aspect of our thinking, being, doing is diminished. 
Let's take an example from education. So the calculator. Now the calculator is this powerful device that allows us to do simple things like addition, multiplication, uh, long division without having to do it by hand, right? I can just put the numbers in and then it gives me the answer, okay? And this allows within the context of uh, schooling for students to get on with other higher order thinking uh, in terms of math or science. But we also know that there's a cost to this. Using only calculators over time tends to diminish numeracy skills. So those early habits that uh, a learner developed start to atrophy. And this makes sense because we no longer have the habit of uh, having to recall our times tables or having to know the algorithm of or the technique of doing long division. Why would we need to? Because we've got a calculator that can do it. Now, um, this doesn't need to be a problem, but if it is important to us as educators that our students need to continue to know some of those numeracy skills, then we need to find other ways to um, maintain those. The important part of all of this is uh, technology gives, it enhances, but it also diminishes. Here's, a, here's an example closer to home. How many of us remember uh, our phone number of our, of our loved ones? We used to know these by heart. We don't need to anymore because we are now um, offloading our memories onto our devices. Of course, we've done this for millennia through writing things down, right, for us to remember them. So it's not, that's not unique to digital technologies. This is a law of technologies more generally. So what do you see as the next PowerPoint, that next technology that's going to be a game changer for education? I think I would put AI and machine learning in that category, but in doing so, I think perhaps a better answer is digital technology itself. Um, your example of PowerPoint is just one of many uh, little tsunamis along the way as the school system, uh, post-secondary, are adapting and changing relative to these major shifts and changes in what I will call our cognitive ecosystem. Uh, schooling, as we traditionally tend to think about it, was based on books and writing and, um, you know, our, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now the environment is so much more complex. It is not stable as books are. It is fluid, moving, and AI and machine learning are all part of that major shift in what's going on in, in education. So digital technology is the killer app here. Well, we're going to dig into talking about digital technologies, and we're going to do that from the perspective of talking about the people who are impacted, so the teachers and the students. So as a professor, um, I'd love to know about your experiences in how digital technologies have impacted you. 
How has digital technology impacted the way you teach, the way you interact with students, even how you would manage your administrative processes? What does that look like for you? Right. So as an educator, I believe I've always used some digital technologies in my teaching. Um, and I cannot imagine life without them. That said, um, when ever possible, I do put a premium on face-to-face -face class discussion and hands-on activities. Everything else, including readings, assignment descriptions, PowerPoints, grading, I make available online. I work hard to create that space, that online space is a second classroom space for students. And for the last, at least the last decade, um, I've made sure that I have a paperless classroom. Of course, there are places where we do want to use paper, but those are very specific examples of, of using it in the classroom as opposed to handing out articles. So are these skills that you had to learn? Because, I mean, we're sitting here right now in the middle of a pandemic, and so many educators are having mild panic attacks that they're no longer able to be face-to-face -face anymore. They have to do everything digitally. And um, I'm just wondering about that. Like, was that a learned skill? How did you actually get to that point where you were able to kind of navigate these technologies in a way that really worked for you? Probably because it's always been a big interest to me. I have, I mentioned about PowerPoint love-hate relationship. I have a love-hate relationship with technologies in education because I think it's really important to balance those. That said, over time, I have made sure that I use different technologies, and I do that in a way that I hope will get my students to think critically about how those technologies are being used. That becomes the purpose in it. One of the interesting things that I believe has happened in the pandemic is by forcing all of these educators onto the web, at least for some period of time, it has been absolutely a, a big struggle um, our workload has increased tremendously. At the same time, I've seen a tremendous amount of innovation, a tremendous amount of new skills and excitement at what is possible online. I'll just give an example. Um, I teach, a, I mentioned an introduction to technolo educational technology class. That particular uh, course has over 300 students in it, which a year ago was in a very large lecture section. Now it's completely online. And one of the activities, which we probably should have done quite a while ago, was, is now to do a little short video. And this has given me an opportunity to see students in a way that I never would have had an opportunity to meet them in a large lecture hall. So I have a sense of, of their lives, right? So those kinds of insights, there are certain things we can do online. Uh, practicing our writing skills in dis online discussions is very different than the kinds of skills that we gain in speaking with one another. And to all of that, I would like to add, 
we want a balance there, right? Um, not to be totally online, not to be totally face-to-face, -to -face, but find a way to um, try out all of these different possibilities. I love that story, and I, I love that use of technology to bring you closer to some of those 300 students um, who would have been in the lecture hall. Now, in addition to your work uh, as a professor, you're also working at a bigger level. You're part of a, a team uh, that's helping to develop a national framework for computing science in the K-12 educational curriculum. Can you talk a little bit more about that project and explain why this work was done, who was involved in it, and what was covered in this framework? This particular project was the brainchild of uh, Melissa Serafidine, who's the CEO of Canada Learning Code. Canada Learning Code is a not-for-profit group that started out, I believe, as Ladies Learning to Code and was, and was one of the recipients of two federal CanCo grants. This was um, to encourage, basically, uh, computing literacy among youth. Well, Mel formed an advisory group a few years ago, which ultimately culminated in the publication this summer of this pan-Canadian K-12 computer science education framework. And the idea was to build a guide for provincial ministries of education to use in developing curriculum over the coming years to ensure that all Canadian children grow up learning some of the key ideas of this important 20th century science. The framework has five focus areas. There's programming, computing and networks, data, technology and society, and finally design. And each of these focus areas outlines some key themes along with suggested learning pathways. So for example, in the data focus area, um, that includes a pathway that's on AI and machine learning. So beginning in the early years, students or learners identify commonly used tools that incorporate AI and machine learning. And later they learn some of the basic ideas of AI systems and ultimately consider how human biases become part of a technical system. Another focus area that's dear to my heart is around technology and society. And here we have uh, themes such as technology and well-being, history of technologies, ethics, safety and law, and the social impacts of um, digital technologies. So, for example, young learners begin to identify how digital technologies have changed how people live, how they work, how they play. Um, and later they explore how we are shaped by our technologies, but as well how we can shape the te these technologies ourselves. And it's hope that this curriculum will come together that at that point, these learners will have opportunities to see how they themselves can be not just users of technologies, but creators of technologies. And then ultimately, we want these young Canadians to be able to think about how these technologies may have effects on different groups, including women, visible minorities, people with dis disabilities, and our Indigenous peoples. Like, how, does, how do these technologies shape 
society shape our individual lives? And how can we be more proactive? How can we align our values um, with um, in our designs of these technologies? So that's what this curriculum is, well, curriculum framework is about. Very interesting. I want to drill into this idea of creation just a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that everyone needs to learn some level of coding um, or, you know, computer science? Is, is this a new core skill? You talked earlier about reading, writing, and arithmetic as kind of the traditional core skills when we talk about education. So how important is it to know how to code or is it more important to understand the broad concepts? I have two answers here. Um, so the idea of computational thinking and this curricular framework is not about raising a generation of coders. That said, the idea is to provide some of those concepts, but it's very difficult to learn concepts without concrete hands-on experience. And having the opportunity to solve problems, to translate those into the language of computing gives this firsthand understanding of what's happening. That doesn't mean that later um, all of these uh, young people are going to go on to do programming. That's not the point, but rather having a working knowledge and understanding of what some of these key ideas are. Um, so yes, there is a little bit of coding that's being asked, but in the same way that we ask students to do math or to do science, we're not necessarily asking uh, any of these young people to go on and do experiments, science experiments for the rest of their lives, but to have an understanding of what a scientist thinks like. We want students to understand what uh, computer scientists think like but also have a fluency with these technologies. So they have an understanding of how they work and therefore can have a more critical perspective in analyzing them. Right. And just picking up on this idea that we talked of earlier about the things that we uh, leave behind or do away with in order to bring in new things, I was actually really surprised to hear that handwriting, cursive writing, is something that's being done away with now in the K-12 curriculum. What are your thoughts on this? Is this a big deal or is this just people being nostalgic? What kind of impact is this going to have? Hmm. So first of all, um, for our listeners, please don't worry. There's still cursive writing <laughs> in, in Alberta's schools, but it certainly is has been on the chopping block in a number of countries. Probably one of the more famous ones is Finland has phased out cursive writing. And I think that was about five years ago and it's replaced it with print handwriting and keyboarding. And actually I think in Alberta schools, cursive writing is introduced around grades three and four. And I mean, one of the, the arguments for keeping cursive writing because when you think about it, how often do you uh, write cursively other than perhaps to sign something? Most of our writing occurs now um, in a word processing type environment. In other words, we're using a keyboard um, or filling in a form, which 
in, insists on um, print writing. One of the arguments for continuing cursive writing is there's evidence in terms of uh, brain development, um, developing fine motor skills. Um, others have said, well, cursive writing slows our thinking down, okay, which in the age of Google and our whole, the whole technological environment we're in, there's something to be said for that. At the same time, it's really important not to be precious about these older technologies, like the fountain pen, for example. To the argument that cursive writing improves our fine motor skills, I could reply, well, so does learning to play an instrument, right? Or even knitting. The question in my work is really about how do we support a more balanced media ecology, we'll call it, so that um, this is matching and supporting the development that we want our children to progress through uh, cognitively, physically, socially. And while I think cursive writing, there is a certain nostalgia to it, there are reasons to keep it for now, but we should always question that as educators. Why are we maintaining this particular technology when our, our kids really need to know how to keyboard and to keyboard quickly, right? I think those are excellent points. I have to say, though, I am still pretty old school, and I love to journal. I love to uh, write, and it, there is something about connecting pen to paper that I find uh, really does help clarify my thinking in, in a lot of ways. Nice. Um, so I'm glad to hear it's not completely gone yet, um, <laughs> even as we build and add these new skills. Um, another thing I'm wondering about, just to kind of shift gears slightly, I'm wondering about access because we know it's not always equal when it comes to access to digital technologies. We have this thing called a digital divide and uh, digital infrastructures or technologies are not always available to everyone. So can you talk about this issue about who's impacted and what does this mean for enabling education in ways that are equitable? Right. So I'm going to respond to this in a few ways. Um, there was a very recent study uh, done in the U.S. Um, like this, this year um, that showed that more than a third of children in lower income households do not have a computer at home. And while this might not be quite the case in Canada, I think we can draw some analogies uh, in terms of or or. Uh, some connections there, and more than a quarter lack internet access. And we certainly uh, know that this is the case, um, for example, uh, in, for many of our Indigenous families. Um, so one policy would be so we could ensure that all children have safe and age-appropriate access to uh, Wi-Fi connected device at home. But we also need to be careful here because children in lower income homes, as it turns out, spend an average of two hours more a day with screen media than children in higher income households. So there's this interesting balance here. And so we need to think about, again, what are kids doing with these 
these technologies. And yes, we need to acknowledge this digital divide and think about how we can uh, mitigate how we can help that particular situation. But we also need to keep in mind that in lower income families, kids have been shown to spend perhaps too much time um, on screen media. The other thing we've got going on here is access to other technologies. So those lower income uh, children may be watching more TV, for example, but we switch that situation on to an internet uh, uh, Wi-Fi connected device, and now we have more access to, say, YouTube, which presents yet another problem. Um, so with YouTube, for example, you might be surprised that uh, little ones under to spend about 50 minutes on um, a screen, two to four, this jumps up to uh, about two and a quarter hours, and then five to eight were over five hours a day. And half of the kids who are in that middle group, two to four, own their own or have access to their own mobile device. Okay, which kind of explains why there's this jump in how much um, time is being spent on these devices. So this question of the digital divide is extraordinarily complex. And um, so in solving that problem, we need to be cognizant of this other problem that we have, which is um, uh, lower income kids been watching more and more screen-based media. And this is not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of complexity to that. And um, I think now, I, I feel like our conversation thus far has really done a good job of setting the stage for what we're about to talk about, um, which is specifically artificial intelligence. So I'm going to start out by quoting a line from your work. The peril of technology lies not in this or that of its manifestations, but in the pervasiveness and consistency of its pattern. So for, that's from one of your papers, and you were quoting a philosopher, Albert Borkman. And I want to know, when it comes to AI as the new technology manifestation, what do you see as the consistent pattern that's playing out as we move down this road in adopting AI in education? I believe that quote was from a paper that I did on PowerPoint. And it was probably in relation to the kinds of habits of thinking that we develop when we use this particular software. So we start to think in terms of bulleted slides and particular patterns of presenting. And so we have this idea of it's the pattern um, and the pervasiveness that's important. Now, AI is a different category of technology than than PowerPoint, in part because it does describe a host of, of machine learning technologies today anyway that support many different applications from natural language processing to driving a car. But if I were to 
give some pattern. <laughs> I would say that it is AI's capacity to be used for decision making. And I think this is a, a crucial understanding because as AI and machine learning are able to make more and more smart decisions for us, we will increasingly be willing to offload our own decision-making to these technologies. So there is the pattern, I think, or a pattern that belongs to AI as it stands today. So this feels like the calculator on steroids here, um, as we're kind of offloading more and more of that decision-making capacity. So let's, you know, maybe dig into that one level deeper. And so how specifically do you think AI is going to shape education? What do you see that impact looking like? There are multiple fronts here. Uh, let's look at teachers' work, for example. We have, for example, automatic essay scoring. We have um, chatbots that stand in for teachers that can help with that. So it changes what uh, teachers do, what it is they're responsible for. We can look at the learner's environment. Uh, they, uh, students have all of these assistive technologies to help them now. Anything from uh, text to speech, speech to text. We have um, anytime you're doing your email, it, uh, it helps you. We've got uh, suggesting what it is, dear uh, uh, Katrina, uh, that, that just fills autofill. We have autocorrection. We have Grammarly that always tells me that what I'm writing is way too long, and but it does compliment me on my vocabulary. <laughs> All of these technologies are a boon in terms of being able to do so much more, to expand what it is that we can write, what we can think, etc. At the same time, Maybe you've noticed how you can now make the same spelling mistake over and over again, and it's just auto-corrected. So if now you find yourself writing by hand, you may have forgotten how to spell certain things. So that's an example of where those sorts of things begin to atrophy. On the other hand, um, if this is our new environment, made up of these smart cognitive extenders, then this can be a ver very powerful way of how it is that we're going to go forward. All right? So much to unpack there. Um, first of all, with respect to the marking, I know there have been a number of controversial media stories that have come up fairly recently. I believe there was one in the UK where an AI was assigned to um, grade um, some, some students, and it kind of determined, I think they were senior year students, and it kind of determined who is going to be eligible for the next level, for university. And then uh, some researchers uh, determined that there was some inequities in determining that. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story, but yes. um, I'd love to know your thoughts on that. 
So this is always going to be one of the risks that we run anytime that we uh, use an AI. But of course, we forget that um, the, the systems of grading that we use to determine whether this individual or that individual gets into this college or that university is also being open to interpretation. That said, we need to be really careful as we are using uh, machine learning to make these decisions for us. And so now we're back at this idea of this pattern of decision making is being able to intervene as human beings and to not forget how it is we make these decisions and what is most important. As human beings, in terms of allowing entrance into different schools, for example, that process is continually tweaked, right? We want to make sure that the most deserving students um, get in. At the same time, we also want to, as we're looking at uh, equity issues, is making sure that it's an even playing field. And sometimes that means making other decisions. Um, and all of these need to be taken into account. Of course, uh, computing scientists who are working in machine learning are aware of these questions and are continuing to try and build these models to take account of what is essentially a bias that perhaps we're not happy with, yeah. okay? It, does this really reflect what it is that we're after? And we should always be asking these questions. Right. And then coming at this from the student perspective and thinking about things as um, simple as autocorrect, for example. So just kind of circling back to this idea and this um, term that you used earlier of cognitive ecosystem. Can you talk a bit about how you see AI and machine learning impacting our cognitive ecosystem. How do you see that playing out? So one of the things we need to do is, is think outside of our brain box. Um, why I say that is, is we tend to think about our cognition as just being located in our head. Really what we've learned, um, particularly over the last decade or two from cognitive uh, scientists is we need to start thinking about cognition as distributed. Um, human beings, but of course other, other animals, um, are also characterized by our use of tools. Human beings are able to extend their cognition in multiple different ways through the technologies that they built. Now we're building some really smart technologies. As we take up and use them, that means that our thinking can move along these different avenues in new and unexplored ways. It can scaffold our thinking in that way. But we also need to start thinking about, particularly as in education, what kind of digital ecology do we want in the classroom to help support the developing minds of our children? And over, you know, before the 
when technologies or digital technologies were first arriving on this scene, there was this general sense that any and all technologies would be good. We just need to bring as many as possible into the classroom. I think we've learned quite a bit since then and that we need to be really careful about and, and thoughtful about what these technologies are doing, what they are scaffolding. If we understand that all technologies um, in particular give a certain way of thinking compared to another way of thinking. And PowerPoint for me is this easy touchstone because we can see how it helps uh, frame thinking in a particular way. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. And this is where we start to come back to something called value-sensitive design, where we start thinking about, do these technologies align with my values as a teacher, for example? Do these technologies align with what this particular child needs at this particular moment, rather than treating technologies as this necessary good? Right. I'm trying to get out of my own brain box and thinking about all of that. And um, I suppose the thing I wonder about, and this is maybe the dystopian science fiction perspective, is, you know, if, if AI really is about decision making and we're offloading more and more of that decision making in the classroom, how do we um, how do we hold on to being able to make decisions? Or do we not need to worry about that? Well, that's the big question. <laughs> <laughs> Any answers and, on that? <laughs> and here, so let's go back to the cursive writing. Um, as we bring new technologies in, we do ultimately need to let go of some others. We all, our, our human bodies are only capable of doing so many things, right? So this is where we want to think about what education is for and where it is that we're heading towards here. I joke sometimes that all questions around technology and education necessarily lead back to what education is about in the first place, simply because technologies scaffold and suggest particular ways of being in the world. There's a famous story um, by a science fiction writer that I'm sure everyone has heard of, uh, Isaac Asimov, called The Feeling of Power. And in that story, there's a, a fellow who, uh, it's actually set in perhaps our time, right? So it was written in the 50s. And this society was completely dependent on technology to do everything for, for it. And this particular technician decided to look at older technologies to find out how these computers were originally programmed. And he essentially reversed engineered how to do multiplication and division. The funny thing was, is in this story, people no longer knew how to add or multiply, divide. And so when this fellow could, on a piece of, with a pen and paper, do these things, it was like magic. He was the smartest person in the world, right? <laughs> um, does it matter that we still know how to do these things? 
that's a really important question. I personally don't want to answer that. I want um, educators to answer that for themselves. I think it's really important that we step out of um, thinking about what schools are for in traditional ways and consider what the possibilities are. And here, this is why I really love reading uh, uh, science fiction novels and stories, just to see these visions of the future, to start asking these hard questions about where we're going, right? Yeah. These are fantastic questions. And as you're unpacking those examples, I'm thinking, well, I don't know how to milk a cow or churn butter, and my <laughs> life's turned out okay. Um, so, you know, what are the things we're willing to let go of? What are the things that we feel are important? And how do those align with our values? I think those are all really important questions and a great segue into pulling back and kind of looking at some of these higher level issues. So something that's been a bit controversial is the role of private companies in public education. So, for example, there's been lots of stories about Google Classroom being rolled out in schools. Um, there's not necessarily options for students to opt out. Um, there's stories of students needing specific apps to participate in a curriculum. And now, of course, we have Zoom and we have all these online video platforms. So we have a lot of private corporations that are kind of coming into this space of public education. And they're also gathering a lot of data uh, from young people in the public education system. So is this at all concerning? And can you talk about the ethical challenges as we seem to be relying more on these private companies to provide all of this digital infrastructure? Hmm. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a word, is this concerning? Yes. Um, and ultimately, for me, this issue comes down to this ongoing underfunding of education and what it costs today. I was recently reading about a state in India that had made a deal with an AI startup called MindSpark um, to deliver AI-powered educational software for free to all of the students during the pandemic. What was the cost? Well, all MindSpark wanted in return was the student data. Well, I think this particular arrangement speaks volumes. I think we all understand now or are beginning to understand that the data that companies are collecting from us is valuable. And with ed tech companies in particular, profiting from the collection and use of our children's data is alarming. Um, and one of the difficulties here is how, how policies protecting student data is running behind the times. But even if it wasn't, again, we can pay, as I, I'm sure you know, we can pay to have things not collect our data. And this is the bind that I see educational uh, systems in now is the only way to get this uh, sophisticated software is having to pay for it, but there is no money for it. And thus the currency now is student data. That's worrisome. 
Yeah, it is worrisome. And is this some of the, you talked earlier about how uh, this particular area of ethics and society is actually a real passion of yours. Um, and you are doing work on um, national frameworks um, with Canada Learning Code and other organizations. Can you talk a bit about whether this, does this get discussed at that level? And are there any solutions being proposed? It certainly is discussed. I think the problem is so large. Um, governments are simply not in a position at this point to address it. That said, I mean, we've seen, for example, um, Europe passing a much stronger uh, legislation to help protect our data. And I think uh, it's interesting. I know that uh, some of our Indigenous peoples have been big advocates for making sure that they have control over their data. I think that's wonderful, and it's something that we need to be thinking about as a society. We would be horrified to know that our health data, our medical data, was being shared, and we do have protections around that, and yet just about everything else that we do seems to be a bit of a free-for-all. Now, I should say that a lot of EdTech companies realize that this is an issue, and they are careful to publicize that they are only using a little bit of data or are cleaning it so that it's not associated with particular children. But we also need to understand that AI in general needs all of this data in order to do the work that it does. So it's a bit of a puzzle at this point. Yeah, yeah, it sounds, again, another complicated issue. Mm. Well, sticking with this kind of bigger picture theme, I'm gonna ask you the crystal ball question. Um, as technology shapes the curriculum and in turn shapes our next generation, what do you think the implications are for society writ large? In what ways do you see these changes that are playing out in education impacting other social structures, whether that's politics, um, economic structures, or cultural structures? It's a big question. <laughs> I think a first step are the ethical issues that have been unfolding in the wake of the deployment of these technologies. The reality is, is this has always been the case. There was a famous essay um, written in the early 80s by Langdon Winner called do artifacts have politics? He told the story of a city planner in New York who had built or designed overpasses in the city in such a way that they prevented low-income people from being able to pass under it. Why? Because the public transit, they were depending, but cars could go under these, these bridges. What was the effect of this? The effect of this was that public transit could not get to the lovely beaches in the Long Island area. And so this was, without putting up a sign that says uh, whites only, it was effectively a form of apartheid. So the resounding answer to do artifacts have politics was yes. 
Um, but of course, this changes over time. Now, all that, all those low-hanging overpasses do is is catch trucks under, you know, underneath it. But the point was made that technologies can have social impacts. Many, many different examples here. Um, we can also see, and this is something that, again, our scholars are waking up to with this whole notion of algorithmic bias, that this can also be a form of systemic racism that uh, we need to attend to. But it's, as they say, turtles all the way down. We can see this in material dimensions, not just in software, but just in terms of access. So what this has done, this whole shift to thinking about the ethics of AI, has got us thinking differently about how it is the technologies that we design may in fact be concretizing biases that we may or may not have intended, right? So we don't need to attribute any sense of malice necessarily, but to do that, they also diminish something else. So by nature, technologies are already biased. The problem is that bias ought to reflect the values that are important to us as a society. And we don't need to just be looking at AI to do that. Right. Lots to consider there. Um, we are going to wrap up our time here. I just have one final question for you. And that's what's next for you in terms of your own research? I currently have a little project with Alberta Teachers Association and some of my colleagues here at the University of Alberta. Uh, we're really interested in thinking about AI and teachers' work. And particularly what kinds of ethical issues, what kinds of knowledge will our teachers need going into the future. Within the context of my teaching, I'm particularly interested in helping our pre-service teachers think differently about the technologies that they're using in the classrooms and considering ethics, not just from what they are uh, protecting student privacy, but also how the technologies they bring into the classroom may be shifting in unintended ways the cognitive ecosystem of their students. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Fascinating stuff. I just want to say thank you so much for being here on the podcast today and for sharing your research and your stories. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katrina. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. 
Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.